let me just give folks uh, uh, an introduction to who you are. Okay. Um, so, in 2366, Elizabeth Dennehy was assigned to Starfleet Tactical. She was in charge of Starfleet's tactical analysis and defense of planning for the... No, I've got this wrong. I'm sorry. Nope, that's my, that's, uh, that's my mistake. Elizabeth has uh, uh, acted with Shakespeare and Coentina Packer, uh, the Williamstown Theater Festival, the New York Shakespeare Festival with Mr. Kevin Klein. But now you're an extraordinary teacher of Shakespeare at the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts uh, in LA. And... Um, that's that's where you've been that's where you've been really diving into Shakespeare most recently. Oh no, not most recently. Last weekend you just played the title role in the Scottish play. Yes, we did. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 15th year, number 767. Star Trek Shakespeare. As you may know, I'm now doing a monthly series of video conversations called The Shakespeareance, which is also the name of my new website. And back in June, I talked with my old friend Elizabeth Dennehy about the intersection of Shakespeare and Star Trek, both of which she's intensely familiar with. Well, to be fair, she, as you'll hear, she's way more knowledgeable about Shakespeare than Starfleet, but we talked for an hour about how a background in theater and Shakespeare can help with understanding and acting in Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future, and vice versa. We started by talking about how we met when she came to take the tour I was leading at our co-op preschool in Los Angeles when I recognized Elizabeth from the classic Star Trek Next Generation episodes, The Best of Both Worlds, Parts 1 and 2. I recognized you and came up to you in a creepy way as I think about it now, going, excuse me, aren't you Lieutenant Commander Show? Because I was that nerd. And, and yet you didn't run screaming. I uh, don't remember. That's even better. I do remember, but I, I always, every single time somebody recognized me, I'm, I'm blown away. I can't believe it. I can't believe. It. First of all, I had that awful hairdo, so I don't think I look like, um, like Shelby. And I'm always, I'm always flattered. Can you talk about how, how Star Trek came to you? How you got the gig? Um, it was just an audition. It was a day, just like any other day. I went on an audition. I didn't know anything about Star Trek. I didn't know who Riker was. I didn't know that Patrick Stewart was on it. I knew nothing. And I was 27. So right off of the boat in new in LA, went to this audition, um, got a call back. Um, I remember being haughty and disdainful sorry i'm sorry guys i was i was because what because you were a serious actor or a shakespearean or or not no. into sci-fi or i or never just a bitch a bitch and haughty and full of myself and um whenever i go to star trek conventions and people will say to me if you weren't into sci-fi what did you watch and i'm like i was Addicted to Brideshead Revisited, Six Wives of Henry VIII, Upstairs, Downstairs. I was an Anglophile. I loved the the British period, Merchant Ivory. That was who I was. So a different kind of costumed fantasy. Yeah. 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 I yeah. didn't, sci-fi didn't appeal to me at all. Um, and did sorry. you, yeah. did, did you find that, um, did any of the tricks of your theatrical 
trade or your Shakespearean training and background adaptitude, did that factor into, did that warp factor into your ability to memorize the techno babble or play pretend against the green screen at all? <clears throat> I'm going to be really honest with you. They should have fired me. I was terrible. Hmm. I was ter- I've told this at conventions. I, my first day, I, all right. Remember I was 27. Think back. Okay. The night before my first day of shooting, and I didn't know that you shot out of order. I didn't know what scenes they were going to shoot first. So I was like, well, my first scenes, I, I, I don't have that many lines. The first day I showed up the night before was the opening night of Tony and Tina's wedding in LA. Didn't get a lot of sleep. Wow. And I was not off book in any shape or form. I was used to the guiding light where you showed up, you had 40 pages, they would rehearse the entire show in order, according to set. So if there were eight scenes in the saloon, you would do those eight scenes in order. So in the morning I would show up rehearse, then I would have all day to learn my lines. I had never done a TV, a nighttime primetime show before. And so we got in the trailer and I was like, oh, this scene is first? And then I thought, okay, I have all day to learn it. And they were, they lit it, you rehearsed it, went in makeup. And then they were like, we're ready for you. And I was like, oh my God, you're kidding me. And you know what scene it was? What? Which? Well, I'll never, never forget the lines now. Projections suggest that a Borg ship like this one could continue to function effectively, even if 78% of it were rendered inoperable. (laughs) And I remember screwing it up and screwing up. I didn't know about master and then they're going to be on you. You know, you're a theater major in school. They don't tell you. Well, I think now they do. Hopefully they, they don't do now. Tell you, they do not tell you about how it works at all. And I remember when my son got his first job that Chicago met, I was like, this is what happens. And he was like, mom, they taught us all this in school, but I didn't learn any of this. So I'm thinking they do the master. I'm like, oh, thank God I got through that. Oh, no, no, no. Now it's your close up. Now we cover everybody else. I I don't know why they didn't fire me. I was terrible. I was terrible that first day. And I can remember saying that line and screwing it up 50 times. And after the 50th time, LeVar Burton went, and I thought, oh, my God. I had no idea. I had no idea that that it was going to be coming up that soon. Well, you better believe that night I went home and freaking memor. Sorry, am I allowed to curse? Sure, Memor- why not? I memorized that entire show because, again, I didn't know. What, you know, now they email you the call sheets. They email you the shooting order. But you just showed up and you were handed this call sheet and the scene order. And I was like. Oh my God. Oh my God. I was terrible. So unprofessional. Thank God for Jonathan Frakes. He was so nice to me. He knew he could tell that I was really green. He could tell that I was really nervous, took me under his wing, said, my trailer is your trailer. We went in there. We ran lines constantly and I never messed up again. Um, after that first day. That's very cool. That's very cool of him. And he is clear. I mean, he's, he's gone on to be quite a successful director as well. And those impulses, you know, he showed working with you and fun too, because you guys, the two of your characters were going at it so much. There's something else I need to mention, which is something that I learned on the soap opera, which is when you're doing a scene, when we only had the first half of the script, you know, so we didn't get the second half. We had no idea 
what was going to happen. So right. I was. Oh, you mean the, the first episode of the, the two-part episode. episode? Yeah. We only had the first episode. We had no idea. So we were. T- he and I would talk a lot about. We have to play that anything could happen because anything could happen. I could have been a Borg in disguise, a Matahari, like double agent. We could have ended up in falling in love with each other. We just had no idea. So one of the first things he said, so he said, we need to like play a little bit of heat here in case something like that happens. And I was like, oh yeah, right. You're just trying to like, you know. And he was like, no, 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 I'm serious. And it was the same with The Guiding Light. You'd be having a huge fight scene with somebody and then the next week you were in bed together. So you kind of have to play very three-dimensionally and leave as many doors open as possible and all these options. So a lot of times people would say, oh my God, I hated you when you would go, like when I, when I, um, what was this thing? Changed the phaser frequencies and it worked. The tractor, the shield broke. Yeah. And that little face I make of like, because I didn't know if I was going to end up being a villain. So we had to play, plant the seeds for any eventuality to come true. What about the Patrick Stewart of it all? Did you get to interact with him much? Did you see any of the Shakespearean greatness of Patrick Stewart in his portrayal of uh, Jean-Luc Picard? Um, I wish that I had hung out with him more. Um, Everybody was kind of frantically trying to learn lines all the time. The other thing that some people don't realize about TV land is this was the last episode of a season. And I don't know if you've ever shot a last episode. They are done. They are tired. They've done 26 episodes and it's the last one. So it's the martini. So like the martini of the martini, they're just like, you know, I remember him being very charming, really delightful, very funny, very irreverent. Like I got there and I'm like all, you know, ready to be all Shelby. And when they said, Oh, we get hit. The ship gets hit. Is it a four? Is it a five? Is it a 10? And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And they were like, literally like the reactions. And I thought, this is what you do. This is, I mean, it's like cowboys and Indians. It's ridiculous. You really literally are playing pretend. So they, they had a lot of fun joking around about that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> I love it I, because, because we still haven't installed uh, seat belts on the enterprise. The other thing that was funny about him. And I, I don't know if Brent Spiner will be watching this, but he kept trying to match me and Brent up. He was like, I think the two of you should go on vacation together. And Brent didn't talk to me for the whole rest of the uh, episode because he was so embarrassed. <laughs> it's very sweet. Very well, cute. Well, that's motivation enough to for me to send this to Brent Spiner and get it. <laughs> I've, I've seen Brent many times since then and I don't bring it up. This is Scott Bakula, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Okay, can you please take the gun away from my head now? Where can you RSC the RSC? We're still the Remote Shakespeare Company until November of 2021, and you can see all of our upcoming tour dates. Spoiler alert, there aren't many, starting in November 2021 at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office venue and ticket information. And now, back to my conversation with Elizabeth Dennehy. 
As always, in the Shakespeareans, I open up the conversation and take questions from my Patreon supporters. Mia Gosling, the creator of the Shakespearean webcomic Good Tickle Brain, started off by asking Elizabeth what her favorite moment in Shakespeare is and why. Well, it's so hard to separate the moment in the script from productions I have seen. Yeah. And, um... I have to say the first thing that pops in my mind, and Austin, you and I have this, this similar moment, when um, the Autolycus bear scene in the Goodman production of Winter's Tale was yeah. mind-blowing. Very moving. Mind-blowing. Not comic, but m tremendously moving, yeah. Oh my God, I don't know how they got a bear suit and somebody to move. So you guys know Exit Pursued by Bear, and it's always kind of like a joke. Um, with the way they did it with the thunder noise and the baby crying and then that suit looking so real and then him going, sacrificing himself, here lies the chase. Uh, mind-blowing, uh, mind-blowing. Another moment that I really love is in Richard III when um, Clarence is, I, I love Clarence, oh, so hard to pick. I love Clarence's murder. I love Clarence's speech before his murder. But when the family realizes that Clarence has been killed, the um, uh, King uh, Edward has a, an amazing speech. I love that moment. Yeah, those, those are great moments. Um, Kate Pitt is asking, can you talk about teaching Shakespeare uh, to students? How do you start? And what age do you te are you teaching now? They're sophomores, right? Yes, they are um, 10th graders. And um, how do you start is the million dollar question. Um, I'm lucky because I teach in an arts high school. So these students come from all over Los Angeles. It's a free tuition, tuition free school, but conservatory style. So I know I'm getting kids who are actively pursuing theater. They've auditioned to get into the school. Um, they're a little bit more prepared than than just a regular public school where I just have to go in and cram Shakespeare down their throats. And some classes I can get really go into the weeds and do trochees and spondees and all the different meters. And and when we are able to do that, I'll put a line of text on the board like um, she doth teach the torches to burn bright and then have the kids you know, divide up the speech into feet and then have the kids yell out, do a spondy, trochee, spondy, and have the kids try. And it's a great way to, so it's sort of like wow. becomes price, the price is right with different um, feet. different. Uh, <laughs> the price is right approach to teaching Shakespeare. That's a good, that's a good manual to publish. Um, well, and I, I've, I, you've asked me to um, sit in on some of the coaching with some of your kids and I'm amazed at how uh, poised your students are and I guess maybe some of that is because they want to be actors and they have a kind of a, a presence. But I mean, I have to attribute a lot of that confidence and swagger that they have to whatever you're giving them. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about, um, uh, you know, like Shakespeare and Star Trek, the intersection and the intersection of Shakespeare and popular culture, and whether that is helpful to you as a teacher in talking to your students about Shakespeare. Like I, I, I know that you did a version of Midsummer where the mechanicals or the fairies were sort of a Marvel superheroes or something <laughs> like that. Um, we had an idea. This I stole it from. When I, w I went to the Globe, uh, they have it. The Globe Theater has a teaching program that's phenomenal. Um, it's three weeks and it's teaching teachers how to teach Shakespeare. And we, at the end, it culminated in a scene where the rehearsal scene, um, 
that scene where uh, Ariel met, from Ariel met to lead him to my bower. So when when Titania wakes up, and um, we were talking about how funny it would be if Cobweb was Spider Man, and I was like, Oh my God, I love that idea so much that I stole it from that those rehearsals and came back, and I thought it, my kids would love that. So we did it at a, a Shakespeare festival, and you know, Mustard Seed was just in a um, like a Power Rangers. They were all in. Power Rangers and superhero Incredibles, um, what do you call it? Morph suits with tutus and fairy wings, nice. just based on Cobweb being Spider Man. And when so when she said "tie up my love's tongue," the girl doing Spider, she went like this. And then what we wanted to have was actually string coming out and then tying up bottom, but we didn't have time time to rehearse that. But I I still think it's an amazing idea. Uh, Mia asks a follow-up. Um, what plays and characters have you found that students respond to the most? So what I, um, you, you always have in class, that's a great question. Um, kids who are like, I'm going to hate this. I'm going to hate this. And, and sometimes they're more determined than you are and you just have to let them go. Um, but what I'll do with kids who are having trouble this year, I've already figured out what I'm going to start with. I'm going to start with um, Lance's second speech about cra uh, Crab the Dog farting under the table. That's always to start with something that's really, really accessible, easy to understand, and, and have so that they can be like, oh my God, I had no idea that was going to be so fun. Last year was great because um, the uh, PBS released the all black uh, Much Do About Nothing that they recorded in Dele uh, at the telecourt, and I made them watch it before the first day of school and write a report on it. And every single one of them said, Oh my God, I had no idea that Shakespeare could sound like my family, that it was like a party with my family. So that was a gift from God. I hope to God they make that available again. Um, so when I have kids who are really. Um, uh, Leary. I will give them Richard III, Macbeth. They really uh, enjoy playing those uh, the villainous characters. Girls um, like sinking their teeth into Queen Margaret, um, uh, Romeo and Juliet. So in our everything leads towards the evening of Shakespeare scenes, and I like to have a mix of familiar and uh, unfamiliar. We always start with the balcony scene because I think that's um, Romeo and Juliet is. When people who don't know anything about Shakespeare, they'll know Romeo, Romeo, wherefore at that Romeo. We'll like start with that scene, and then I'll go to Hubert and Prince Arthur, um, where he's about to kill him. Because wow. that's a scene that a lot of people don't know about, and it is like the most suspenseful. That could be in Game of Thrones, and so to go from the balcony scene into that scene, people, a lot of people are like, "Oh my god!" And I'll read a synopsis of that scene to the kids. And then not tell them how it ends and be like, well, you got to read it. We want to find out what's going to happen. Um, so I try to mix accessible and familiar with, um, then we'll do like measure for measure, which is, you know, the Angelo, Isabella, the themes that come up, they are very much on people's minds, as, uh, especially young people. And we'll, t you know, talk about what's going on. And, and the other thing that I like to, as you know, Austin, I like to start the year off with the Sir Thomas More speech, which could, could have been written, you know, within the last, could have been written yesterday, but right. certainly within the last five years, um, just so they can, because I always feel like I have to prove 
Shakespeare's relevance, especially now. Um, and I'm an old white lady teaching an old dead white playwright. So when we talk about the moments when Shakespeare spoke truth to power, that really resonates with them. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. If you want to hear more of my conversation with Elizabeth Dennehy about what it was like to for her to play Macbeth, what it was like working with Kevin Klein, and which other Shakespeare speeches kick major ass, go over to my Shakespeareance YouTube page, or you can find a link to the full video at my website, theshakespeareance.com. Then send us your favorite Shakespeare moment or warp factor via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow Elizabeth on Twitter at Dennehy Eliza and on Instagram at Elizabeth Hannah Dennehy. You can follow me on Twitter, too, at Austin Tishner, on Instagram, at the.shakespeareance, and I hope you'll check out my new website. There you can find more information on how I can help you with monologues, presentations, or writing projects. Check out theshakespeareance.com and my Patreon page, patreon.com slash austintitchener. Thanks, as always, to Born to Play a Ferengi with No Makeup, Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power, Limited Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Wilson Varga. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Scott Bakula, Captain Jonathan Archer himself of the original Starship Enterprise NX-01. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, get vaccinated, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Tishner, 767 2301sts of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. How, how valuable is it and what have you learned from watching other actors do this? Like, what was what was it like to watch Kevin Klein do Henry V? You know, what have you what have you learned and picked up from seeing other people do it? Kevin, it was really interesting. I think Kevin Klein is a clown with leading man looks. I mean, we're talking 1984. Yeah. He is mu he was much more comfortable with the wooing of the French princess who was Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio and made that scene hilarious. And I feel like he 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 was an amazing Henry, but he, it wasn't his natural intuition to be this leading man and this um leader. I felt like he he always want, is looking for the humor. I think he's a clown in stuck in a leading man's body. I, I, it, you'll pardon the expression, but I love his bottom in the film. <laughs> this podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.